Matthew 26. It's our habit to try and preach through books of the Bible so that God is setting the agenda rather than uh, the ministers. And we've come to the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26 and verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36. So we've had the, the Last Supper. Judas has gone uh, off to betray Jesus. And Jesus now is going to go and pray. I'm going to read through to, to the end of verse 56. Um, but just to tell you now, we won't be thinking about anything from verse 47 onwards. It's just that we won't be thinking about it next week either. So I thought I'd read it. Um, we'll be picking up in verse 69. Oh, sorry, 57 next week. So Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you've come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. As Nick alluded to earlier in the prayers this week, you might have seen uh, Tim Keller. who's perhaps the most significant author, pastor, uh, evangelist uh, since Billy Graham. He died this week. Uh, his son put a, a message online that said this. Timothy J. Keller, husband, father, grandfather, mentor, friend, pastor and scholar, died this morning at home. Dad waited until he was alone with mum. She kissed him on the forehead 
and he breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his last words. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. There is no downside of me leaving, not in the slightest. Wouldn't you love to, to die like that? It may not be a question you expect to be asked this morning coming along to church, but wouldn't you love to die that confidently? To be able to look your wife of 50 years, your children in the eye and say there is no downside, not for you, not for me, of what's about to happen. Keller, by all accounts, seems to have faced death with no fear. Looking forward to it, you might even say. And yet what a contrast with the man that Keller worshipped. Look at Jesus as he approaches death. Where is the peace in the passage we just read? Where's the tranquility? Where's the stillness? Where's the embracing of death? It is not there at all, isn't it? Is it? Look at verse 37. Jesus, okay, this is the the night before he goes to the cross, knowing the cross is coming, began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is incredibly sorrowful, very sorrowful, even to death. Keller, calm, collected, at peace. Jesus distressed and troubled. What's going on? What I want to say to you today is if you understand why Jesus trembled, then you'll understand why Keller didn't and why you don't need to either. If you understand why Jesus trembled, you'll understand why Keller didn't and why you need never. Two things this morning. First of all, the pains of Christ. Look at, looking at verses uh, 36 through 39. We're, we're in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it's evening. We read in the other Gospels, they've had the Passover meal. Uh, and Jesus leaves Jerusalem, crosses the, the Kidron Valley, the brook, uh, and goes up on a hill the other side, the Mount of Olives, as it's known, and comes to this Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. So you can, you can picture the scene, you, dark, the, the lights in Jerusalem beginning to go out as candles are extinguished. The smell of of, of pressed olives in the air in the warm Middle Eastern evening. Uh, He leaves eight of the disciples and takes with him Peter, James and John. James and John being the sons of Zebedee. Uh, Judas has disappeared already to do his work of betrayal. And with Peter, James and John, the same three disciples who Jesus took up the Mount of Transfiguration when he was uh, transformed and revealed in all his glory, his burning brightness. Those three are are taken further into the garden. The three who saw his glory are now going to see his grief and his groaning. And just look how he's described. We've read those words already. Verse seven, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. That word is a, a word of deep distress. Uh, verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. It's a strange word. And the, the, the commentators and Greek scholars, they don't know how to, 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 quite to translate it. It kind of means surrounded by, by trouble, surrounded by anguish. My soul is surrounded by sadness. Imagine, as it were, Jesus in the, in the center of the circle, his soul there, surrounded by troubles and darkness and devils. 
and there is no escape for him. It's the language actually of, of Psalm 42 and 43, those great psalms of lament in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is downcast and troubled, distressed deeply. Uh, it's not a kind of surface level sadness. It's certainly not crocodile tears. It's not for show. Uh, rather, to use the language of those psalms, his, his soul is in turmoil within him. Why? What's going on? Why is Jesus trembling? Why is he so distressed? Well, the first clue's there in verse 37. He began to be sorrowful and sad and downcast. Something new is happening. He has moved from the, the composure of the upper room where he shared the Passover and sang the, the Psalms with the disciples. He's moved because something is happening to him. We had a clue in verse 39 when he begins to pray, my father, if this is possible, let this cup pass from me. It seems that Jesus' attention is turning to the cup he is about to drink. And at the same time, it is being shown to him by the father just what it will mean to really drink this cup. Now, what is this cup, children, that Jesus is talking about? He's not about to drink from a natural cup. No one's giving him a drink. It is picture language. The cup is a... Uh, an image used often in the Old Testament to describe the wrath of God at sin, his anger. What are children, have you ever seen a, a cup um, in a film perhaps or a TV show, a kind of a witch's cup bubbling over with sort of green liquid, a, a cup that looks the kind of thing you'd hate to drink? It is that kind of image. Let me give you just one verse from the Old Testament, Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen. Thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath, from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it, they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send. It's picture language, but it's picture language of God coming in judgment and people who've turned from me having to drink this cup go mad and stagger. And this cup, Jesus knows, is coming to him. Not because he deserves it, but because he's willing to drink it instead of us. And in Gethsemane, in the garden, although Jesus all his life has known increasingly that this moment is coming, that the cross is coming, in Gethsemane, as it were, God pulls back the blinds and lets him see in all the fullness what is about to happen to him. And therefore he is in the garden. He's in mental anguish. We mustn't turn this down. He is a true man, remember, a true human being. He is suffering mentally more than anybody ever has done or ever would do again. Those words from, 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 from Jeremiah, stagger, go mad because of the cup of wrath that is to be poured. This is eyes wide open, Jesus, looking in horror at what is approaching fast on the horizon. He is about to face the most terrifying thing any human being ever will do. Don't you have fears? There's all sorts of things I'm scared of. The list seems to be increasing as I get older. But, but there are some things, sometimes I see on TV shows, you know, people get so locked in the trunk of a car, the boot trunk of a car, I've got an American, in the boot of a car. 
Okay, you, you sometimes get people get kind of put just the thought of being stuck in there. Honestly, I see that on a TV show, and I just oh my. There, there are things we fear. Nothing has ever terrified anyone like this cup coming towards Jesus. The cup, as it were, passing through the air towards him. The flames of hell are licking at Jesus' feet in Gethsemane. And he knows it. So so do you see, Jesus is already suffering for us. He doesn't deserve to be there. He's the perfect son of God. Jesus has heard those words from heaven at his baptism. This is the son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased, the father has announced. At that Mount of Transfiguration, during his ministry, with those same three disciples, Peter, James and John, again those same words. This is the son in whom I delight. This is the son whom I love. Jesus should have just been carried to heaven in a chariot like Elijah. Angels cheering. Nothing could be further from justice than to give Jesus this cup. But willingly, he says, bring it to me. We tend to think of the suffering of Jesus for us as something that happens just on the cross. So, he, you know, he, he grows up as a carpenter for 30 years. Then he does three years preaching, teaching, doing miracles. And then on the cross, he suffers for us. But his whole life is one of suffering. And in Gethsemane, it intensifies increasingly. I mentioned earlier, Tim Keller was able to die peacefully. That is true, it's got to be said, of non-Christians too. Almost any time you read anyone writing about this passage, this story of Gethsemane, they'll compare Jesus with with Socrates, the great Athenian philosopher. Uh, Socrates, he... Uh, you may remember he, he, he was uh, sentenced to death by the Athenian council, the great, great philosopher, uh, one of the greatest Athenians to have lived, but they condemned him to death. He had to drink hemlock, drink poison. Uh, you read the accounts of his death. What, what people marveled at is calmness. He's able to talk uh, about death very calmly, explain why he's done what he's done, uh, and then just very calmly drinks the hemlock, the poison, and dies. He faces death with incredible bravery. What's, what's going on there? You may know other stories. You may even know people who aren't trusting in Christ, who die calmly. We have to say, don't we, that the reason they can do that is because they have suppressed the truth. They've denied the reality of what's coming. It is possible as human beings so to push down the deep fear of facing God in judgment that we've all but managed to deny it. We've buried it deep in our psyche, but Jesus cannot do that. Because he is coming to die in our place and face this wrath, he must not suppress the truth of what is coming. He must go willingly to the cross. So this soul torment, this psychological horror, this mental anguish, this is part of what we deserve. And therefore what he must bear for us. Close his eyes. He can't pretend it's not happening. He can't try and evade it in any way even psychologically. He can't push it into the corner of his mind, some back cupboard, unacknowledged, avoided, suppressed, denied. He must willingly embrace not just that the pain of the cross, but the horror of it. Because he must willingly put himself exactly where we deserve to be if he's going to rescue us. And the, the terror that he feels in Gethsemane, the horror is part of that. He is there for you and for me so that you and I might never go to the garden of Gethsemane.
Uh, you might know in the wake of the, the, the reformations, the great recovery of the, of the gospel that swept across uh, Europe in the 16th century. Uh, many Christians were put to death, burnt at the stake. Uh, one of them was, was uh, taken to the stake and he, he was asked by, by someone in the crowd, how can you go to your death with such a light heart? Again, this guy was about to be, face a horrible death physically. And yet he seemed so light about it. How can you face, how can you go to the stake with such a light heart? He answered, because Jesus went to his death with such a heavy heart. All the horror, all the terror has been sucked out of death by Jesus here. He willingly and knowingly and purposefully, but terribly, opened himself up to that terrible anguish. That being cut off from all the goodness of God. In order that you and I might never have to go through it. In order that we might be rescued. The pain of Christ. But secondly, the prayer of Christ, the prayers of Christ. Verses 39 through the end. Uh, He goes into the garden, verse 39, and he falls on his face. There he is alone, even from the three. He leaves the three. This is a work that only he can accomplish. They are going to be no use. We'll see three times he goes back to them. They've just fallen asleep. Jesus alone can save. The church is no help. Even the, the supposed finest, the closest of the close, Peter, James and John, even they cannot stand with him for this work. Uh, notice, by the way, and this is, I suppose, something of a side point, but notice with all his troubles and anguish, he goes to God in prayer. Uh, some of us, some of you, I guess, you, when, when trouble comes into your life, suffering, hardship, we're brilliant at talking to other people. We'll tell anyone about what a hard time we're having. Coffee after coffee after coffee, text after text after text, how hard life is, how we're suffering. And yet we don't go to God with it. The one verse that he can actually help. But there's no calm, collected prayer and worship time, is it? Falling on his face, verse 39, he prays. Here is the second Adam, the last Adam. Back in a garden, just as the first Adam was. And he's back in the dust, the dust from which the first Adam came. He has cast himself down in the dirt again. The very dirt from which we were made. He's about to be undone and he knows it. And so what does he pray? Verse 39, if my father, if it be possible, if it be possible, let this cup pass. What if that surprises you? Is he going against the will of God? Surely he knows it's not possible. He, he's been spending this, this whole gospel telling the disciples, I must die. I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. What's happening? Well, here we need to do a little bit of, a little bit of theology okay, for a Sunday morning, a little bit of digging. When Jesus says, not as I will, but as you will, what is he saying? What is he saying? God God has, there is only one God. We know this, don't we? There is one God. And therefore, God only has one will. Okay, God's not conflicted. There's only one God and he has one will. But this one God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not parts of God, children, like parts of a pizza. As if you have to stick Father, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit together to make up the one God. They're not parts like that. Each of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. I know that's mind-blowing. 
you'd expect God to be mind-blowing, wouldn't you? And so because each of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the one God, they share the same will. Father, Son, and Spirit only have one will. There's only one will in God. And so how can Jesus say, not my will, but yours? Well, he's praying, remember, as a man. God the Son has become man, and therefore Jesus, this is going to sound confusing, but Jesus has two wills. He has his divine will, because he's still God, but he also has a human will, because he's really a man. Jesus, not God the Father, not God the Spirit, but Jesus, God the Son, has two wills, a human will and a divine will. And it's that human will, as it were, that is speaking here, or is Jesus speaking as a man? Of course, all his prayers are Jesus praying as a man. God doesn't pray, doesn't need to, does he? But here we meet Jesus, the real human being. And it's not wrong for him to ask, is there any other way? You see, he he couches the whole thing in, in, in humble submission, not my will, but yours. I don't for one minute want to go outside your plan, Father God. But it is natural for a real human being to really fear the death that is coming and to ask humbly, is there any other way to save these people? Jesus, as a man, in his human mind, does not know all things, did not know all things. We know that earlier in the gospel. He says, I don't know when I'm going to return. Mysteriously as God, at the same time, he knows all things. There's another mystery. We've done the Trinity and the person of Christ, two of the greatest mysteries in the the Bible. But as a man, he's got a real human mind. and, And so he's, as a real man, falling on his face, saying, is there any other way? But I don't want to go outside of your will for one second. What does this say to us? It shows you first how much God the Father wants to save you. Do you see that this morning? How much God the Father wants to save you. Why does Jesus' prayer show us that? Well, what's the answer? What, what, what does heaven say in return? Sean, do you see? What does the Father say in this passage? Already mentioned the last time these three and Jesus were together. There was the voice from heaven. You are my son in whom I delight. You are my son who I love. In you I'm well pleased. What does heaven say this time? Nothing. Silence. There is no other way. Jesus is on his own here, as it were. The Father's will is that the son die in place of sinners. One life for millions. This is that the holy son of heaven, the prince of heaven, reduced to the dust so that the men and women of dust can be raised up to be children of God in heaven. You're getting in Gethsemane a window into the heart of God. He is holy, he is majestic, he is almighty. We've seen how terrifying his wrath at sin is, his just wrath. And yet he's so gracious and so merciful that he's willing, well, willing for his own son to die in order that we might be saved. Some of you this morning, you won't see the horror of Gethsemane. You see the garden, you smell the flowers, the oil. You speak about the love of God. Uh, in evangelism, it's someone asks you, what, what, what is the gospel? You say, well, God, God loves you. That's the gospel. God loves you. And you're not seeing how horrendously serious our sin is. 
and how God rightly meets that sin in judgment. Jesus sees that clearly. He sees the cup and knows that it is just. He knows how burningly pure God is. How, how drunk must we be? How drunk must we be to think sin doesn't matter when it makes the Son of God tremble? Here is the purest, most powerful man who's ever lived on his face in the dust at the thought of facing God in anger. Let me say to you, if you're not a Christian here this morning, it, it, it is so good to have you with us. I hope you feel welcome. But at the same time, I sort of hope you feel a bit uncomfortable, <laughs> but, it, but in a good way. I hope you realise that as you're hearing this, that you're being invited to escape that cup. <clears throat> you're being invited and indeed warned, never face God on your own. Your sin and my sin is enough to make us have to drink this cup. And to do so will be utterly horrifying. Just, deserved, and we'll realise it on that last day. We don't realise it now, but we will do then. That'll be part of the bitterness. We'll realise all along God was right. But that'll be horrifying. But this passage also says to you, come. Come to me. Put your trust in me, says Jesus, the Son of God. And all that will be removed. This is your only hope. All of our only hope. Some of us Christians need reminding there is judgment. There is wrath. On the other hand, some of us, we just don't see the love. We can't believe God really loves us, really loves me, really is willing to forgive us. You see the sweat, the horror of Jesus. Uh, perhaps liberal Christians who don't speak enough about wrath and judgment get you angry and wound up. And you've lost the sweetness of his love. You've missed the fact that he is in the garden for you. Do you see how much God the Father wants to save you? He would rather save sinners than spare his son. That is the will of God. Jesus prays the Lord's Prayer, doesn't he? Not my will, but yours. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God answers, my will, Jesus, is that you suffer in order that those sleeping disciples might be saved. God says, my will, Jesus, is that you die, you, the, the, the Holy Son of Heaven, die, so I can save earth's vilest creatures. So I can rescue the, the porn addict. So I can rescue the angry father. So I can bring to heaven that the girl staggering out of the club at 2 a.m. and tumbling into bed with the first guy she sees. So I can rescue the, 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 the sex trafficker, the greedy banker, the, the, the terrorist, the hypocrite. I want you to die so I can spare the cold-hearted, the prayerless, the religious Pharisee, the guilt-laden, the anxiety-ridden. You die, you drink the cup so that they might not have to. That is my will. God's will is to save sinners above sparing his son. That is incredible love, incredible comfort. It's there in the father, it's there in the son as well. Do you see how much the son wants to save you? That this horror is revealed to him and still he presses on. He doesn't say, look, that injustice, that is not, that is not fair. It, it, injustice, he could have said that. Jesus had every right to say no. Had he not voluntarily agreed to stand in our place. 
uh, back in 1739 as a in Massachusetts uh, in uh, in America as a, a famous minister called Jonathan Edwards and he preached a sermon called Christ's Agony and he, he makes a point that I think is, is just stunning and I don't know if I'll do it justice this morning um, I can't read it to you because it's written in 18th century English and it's way too hard to understand but I hope I can do, do it justice I think it's an incredible insight Edwards makes two points about Gethsemane. The first is what we've said already, that the Christ is having, as it were, the, the pit of hell into which he's about to be thrown open to him. He is seeing where he's about to go, and still he is willing to go. That is incredible enough. But Edwards goes a step further and says this, look, when Jesus sees finally the full horror of wrath that's about to come to him, he knows that that wrath is just, that this isn't God flying off the handle, It's not unfair God, angry God, punishing sinners in a way they don't deserve. No, he knows that wrath, that cup is just and fair. Therefore, says Edwards, Jesus, at the same time as being shown what he's going to have to face, is being shown how bad we are to deserve that cup. He sees in all its fullness for the first time just how wicked Human beings are. See what Edwards is, is saying? The, the cup of wrath is a mirror that, that shows us just how sinful we are. And still he goes on. He doesn't say, oh, okay, I would be willing to die for the halfway decent. I, I'm willing to die for the somewhat committed, but come on, not for those sort of people. No, he says, yes, I will die for the porn addict. Yes, I will die for the hypocrite. Yes, I will die for the cold-hearted and prayerless, the drunkard, the exploiter, the greedy. He knows what we're like. He knows what you're like far better than you do. He knows your sin better than you do. And still he loves you and wants to rescue you. That's how deep his love goes, far deeper than you or I realise. As you discover, as you grow as a Christian, new depths to your sin, you're only finding out what Jesus already knew as he died for you and willingly took responsible for. So Peter, James and John here, who've seen the glory of God on the transfiguration, that mountain. They might be tempted to think, well, that was the high point. That is where we see God at his most powerful. Jesus is most powerful, his most glorious, shining, glowing. But I just wonder if in later life, they look back and thought, no, this is where we saw Christ at his most glorious. In the dirt and the dust of the Garden of Gethsemane. Seeing all that was to come and still embracing it. Do you see by the time he prays for the second time, verse 42, the prayer has changed. Instead of take this cup from me. Rather, it's now, my father, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. This is the power of the gospel. This is where you see the power of God at work. Twice in the New Testament, the gospel is called the power of God. Once Jesus is called the power of God. Never are the stars in heaven described as the power of God. I read something this week. Scientists, forgive me if this is just nonsense, but I read it on the BBC, so blame them. Um, some star was being seen travelling across the, 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 the heavens at, at, let me read this properly so I don't get it right, 3.5 million miles per hour. 
That is mind-blowing to me. A star, I don't know how big they are, I know they're really big, <laughs> travelling across the heavens at 3.5 million miles an hour. Maybe some of you tell me that's a slow one, who knows? You think that might be, there's the power of God. You want to see the power of God? Watch this massive burning ball of gas travel across the heavens at 3.5 million miles an hour. Peter, James and John say, no, I'll show you power. Look at the almighty God who is throwing those stars across the heavens. Look at him as a man sweating in the dust, full of terror and yet full of love. There is salvation for you. This gospel is a, is a message that can give anyone hope. It is open to everybody. <laughs> uh, through the doors of a church for the first time this morning. We'll be here for the hundredth time, but grow cold. Keller died at peace because all the bitterness of death was squeezed out into that cup, that cup that Jesus drank. All the bitterness of death squeezed into that cup. So that you and I and Tim Keller and anyone who will come to him might never have to drink it. Believe that and you will rest in peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can't fathom the mystery of what is going on in Gethsemane. We can wonder at it and pray that you would pour your spirit into us that we might wonder and worship. We pray that you would remove from us all fear that we will have to drink the cup that you have drained. And we praise you that you are willing to face the agony and the terror in order that we might never have to. Refresh us in your love this morning. I pray for any who are still uncertain of whether they want to trust you, that you would in your mercy welcome them. Thank you that invitation goes out to all. Come to me. Continue to save, Lord Jesus. Continue to renew. Uh, continue to transform us into men, women, children who bow before you in worship. Do this, we pray. For we ask in your own name. Amen.